You're listening to TIP. I've got to say, I, I think I've underestimated Elon. Even it's really quite amazing what he's pulled off. I think that honestly, he'll go down as, you know, up there with Thomas Edison in terms of the contributions as an inventor and as a person who pushes innovation forward. The thing about Elon is he's so hands on as well. It's not like he's sitting in his office and letting all the engineers do what they do. On today's episode, I sit down to chat with Ryan Reeves. Ryan has been investing since the age of 12 and is now the founder and CEO of Investing City, which is an independent equity research platform. In the first part of the episode, we cover Ryan's overall investment strategy, how he thinks about portfolio allocation, inflation, and the valuation of stocks. In the second part of the episode, we discuss Tesla's recent partnership with Hertz. What makes Tesla so special relative to other automotive companies? Elon Musk's role in the company's success, the future of the automotive industry, potential risks for Tesla investors, and a whole lot more. Even if you're not interested in Tesla specifically, I think it can be useful to hone in on how Ryan and I think about the companies we are analyzing. Many of the things we discuss can be applied when analyzing practically any company. Ryan nor myself own shares in Tesla, so we try to be as unbiased as possible during our conversation and discuss both the potential upside and the downsides for the company. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Ryan Reeves. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And as I mentioned in the introduction, our guest today is Ryan Reeves. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Clay. So you've been on the Millennial Investing Podcast twice in the past. For those interested, those are episodes 55 and 74. For our newer listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? So happy to be back on. and. I've been an investing nerd since I was 12 years old. I bought my first stock at 12. Surprisingly, I actually had a fifth grade teacher who brought in her husband to talk about the stock market. And for some reason, I was really interested and I sort of stuck with it ever since. So after I graduated college, I wanted to do something a little bit off the wall. So I started an investment research firm called Investing City. And here we are almost four years later. So the idea is that I'd have all my portfolio transparent on the website for members, and then all the research reports, weekly updates, and everything else is kind of surrounding this transparent portfolio. And there's a community with all the members. I just study businesses full time and I just get to pinch myself because I love it so much. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive into Tesla. Before we do that, I wanted to touch on some of your overall investment philosophies. How would you describe your overall investment strategy? I don't love the growth versus value distinction just because, I mean, Warren Buffett talks about it. Growth and value are just two sides of the same coin. And if you have a company that's growing really fast, it could be definitely a value investment, even though it multiple might be higher than people think is a good idea to buy it. I guess, but if you have to sort of put a label on it, I would say it's definitely more fast growing companies. 
the way that I think about it is I'm trying to find the highest quality, fastest growing companies. I mean, a lot of times companies that, you know, like some biotech that's growing 400% because of just some drug was approved and they're getting it rolled out. That might be the fastest growing, but based on my circle of competence and just the overall market dynamics, it might not be the highest quality. And then you can have very, very high quality companies, you know, like Microsoft, Google, etc. But they might not be the fastest growing anymore just because they're so big. And so I'm really trying to find that perfect mix of high quality and fast growing companies. And the way that I think about it is, if a company is growing really fast, that shows that there's really high demand for their product. And that's what business at the core is really all about, delivering a great value proposition to customers. And then the other thing is, you want a team that is executing really well. I mean, you can be selling dollar bills for 90 cents and growing incredibly fast. But if you're not executing well and having a clear value proposition for customers and capturing that, then there's really not a viable business there either. Ideally, you can have high growth and high margins. And that's really a sign that they're executing well. And there's, there's some signpost of a moat. So that's really how I think through the strategy. And then there's other factors. Like I love founder-led companies. I think Every company in my portfolio right now is founder-led and looking for big tailwinds, big industry tailwinds, just because you have an industry that's low growth and it just becomes harder to execute. Tailwinds kind of lift your boat a little bit easier. And so there's just a few things that I look for. Now, if I remember your background right, you interned at The Motley Fool. And when I listen to kind of your strategy, you look for those growth companies and you look for the highest quality. And that definitely falls in line with the people I've listened to from The Motley Fool. So I find that very interesting how many of you have that philosophy where you look for the highest quality companies you can find and hold those for the long term. I would say that there is a strong contingent of fools out there that The Motley Fool does really good work and had a great experience learning there. I'm a big fan of The Motley Fool. One of the most difficult parts of investing in these higher growth companies that are very high quality is the valuation. How do you look at valuation? Do you have financial models you use? Or what type of analysis do you do when valuing and determining, yes, this is the right price to pay for a higher growth company? A few thoughts on this topic. And one thing I would say is a lot of times we fall into the thinking where we just want to compare multiples across all companies and say, okay, this multiple is lower, therefore the company is cheap. This multiple is higher, therefore this company is more expensive. But that's really a, a very simplistic way of thinking. Each business is its own unique thing, and each business has different characteristics. So, okay, maybe a multiple is higher, but this company might be more dominant. The industry might be growing faster. Management might be stronger. Overall growth and margins are higher. And so you can't just reduce it down to a multiple. There's so many factors that I actually look at valuation towards the end of my process rather than the very beginning. Because if I'm looking at this company as a unique entity and studying absolutely everything about it, trying to get a holistic picture of what it's going to grow like and, and how dominant its market position, then valuation is in its proper context then. And you can kind of compare it against other companies. And that's kind of the problem is we want this nice, easy formula. But if you're going through the whole process of studying a company and then trying to compare multiples across different companies, across different industries, it becomes a whole lot more complex because there's a lot more gray area. It's like, 
well, how do I value a stronger management team? And what's the magnitude of that strength versus the other company? And how do I factor that into the multiple? It just becomes a lot more gray area. And I think that that's the thing that a lot of people don't really want to deal with. It's much easier to say, Oh, Facebook's at 18 times earnings and you know, Microsoft's at 30 times earnings. Facebook's way cheaper. And that's just so much easier to do. So I think that nuance is really important to think of. But in terms of how I actually just calculate valuation, I try to look five years out, try to get a solid estimate of what I think growth could be, and then what I think margins could be, and what I think is a reasonable multiple, and then sort of discount that back to the future and, and just see what's the expected return of that. So it's really nothing fancy. And I'll do it with different scenarios. So, okay, if they really outperform my expectations, maybe growth is much higher. And then that might trickle down to the bottom line. So margins are a bit higher. And maybe with those characteristics, the multiple should be a little higher and sort of run different scenarios and then kind of try to put some probabilities on the weight of those scenarios to get like a blended valuation that I think is sort of reasonable. It's definitely a lot of work, but it's not like anything too crazy. But I try to look out five years rather than look on a trailing basis. I actually don't even look at any trailing multiples. I'm always trying to look out forward because I think the market is is inherently forward-looking, especially with these type of companies. I think it's important you mentioned the qualitative factors. Say for Tesla, for example, it's hard to put a value on, okay, what's the value of Elon Musk being the CEO of the company? It's really hard to factor that into a model. And it's really hard to figure out how much weight the market's putting on that. And I want to touch on Warren Buffett's number one rule of investing is to never lose money. Part of this rule stems from the fact that if your investment loses 50% of its value, it takes 100% gain to get back to where you started. So are you doing anything to manage risk in your portfolio and ensuring that you aren't taking excess risk? So I think the main thing that I do around managing risk is position sizing. My position sizing is really based on a mixture of my conviction in the company and how much upside I have. So it's really conviction, meaning really longer term downside. I think this company is susceptible to serious disruption. And the way that I view risk is really permanent capital impairment. Volatility honestly doesn't affect how I think about things too much because I mean, there's been multiple times where my portfolio has been down 40% over the past eight, 10 years. And, you know, it's never fun, but I think it is sort of the price you pay when you play in this sphere of the market. So, yeah, while the math says, okay, you're down 50, you have to get back to 100, and some of these companies can go up 100% quite fast. So, I think that it's definitely valid, but. I mean, Warren Buffett also says that you shouldn't invest in the market unless you're willing to lose 50%. So there's clearly... That's sort of the price of admission to the stock market. And it's never fun when you're down that much. But volatility, as long as the business is continuing to execute, I try not to let it rattle me too much. Yeah, you mentioned conviction. And I think that point is really important. When investing in these companies that have higher volatility, seeing a 50% downturn is very possible. And that might not even be due to drastic changes in the fundamentals. So if you've done your research and you built that conviction and a 50% downturn occurs, you know that the fundamentals are still there and the long-term thesis is still intact. That's why I think conviction is so important. If you have no idea why you're holding what you're holding and 
things go south. I would say 50% is maybe extreme for absolutely nothing to happen. But during COVID, that was obviously a huge exogenous shock. But I mean, things were down 50% that even like software companies that supposedly were going to get a boost from COVID and some of them were down 50%. So you could say, hey, there's actually this added tailwind, but even they're down 50%. I think it's definitely interesting. And that's why conviction is so important to know exactly why you're holding what you're holding. And you have the conviction from all the homework you've done, rather than you've got a stock tip from a friend and you have no idea what this company does. You have no idea what the main competitors are. You have no idea if this company is in a dominant market position. So you just have no foundation to stand on. And that's scary. And that's why you'd be super nervous when the stock is down so much. And it's not like I'm not nervous. I just have a more confidence in the actual people running the business. And I even know them by name. And I just understand what they're doing on a daily basis to sort of move the business forward. How many holdings do you typically like to have in your portfolio? Some argue that you should concentrate on a smaller number of holdings that you know very well. Others might argue that you want to diversify into a number of different companies to spread out your risk. I try to be fairly concentrated. So anywhere between 8 and 14 companies, actually. I think right now I'm at 9. And the reason is, I think concentration is important for extreme outperformance, actually. I used to be much more diversified and, oh, this company is a tech company and I need to make sure that I have a different industry to make sure that I'm more sector diversified. And what ended up happening is I'd have real small positions that would do very well. And 1% position might triple and added 2% to my performance. And I was like, I did all this research on this company. I have built this conviction and added 2% to my annual return. And at some point I was like, why am I starting positions so small and I'm not adding to them? It's sort of just this process of frustration sort of led me to a few little rules. So I try not to have position sizes that are, that are lower than 3%, even try to do 4% now. And the reason is, if I don't have the conviction in this company and I'm just sizing it small, then either A, it's a not a no-brainer, or B, I haven't done enough research on it. And so I think that having enough skin in the game really incentivizes me to know absolutely everything about the company as well. And then that also allows me to, when these companies actually perform well, it's a bigger percentage in terms of return for the overall portfolio. And there's obviously an added risk when you size something big and it goes wrong, but that also really incentivizes you to make sure that you make really thoughtful decisions. So I think there's a double-edged sword, but overall, I'm a fan of concentration just because it makes you stay really sharp. And then it it also can really add some outperformance in terms of your portfolio. So one thing that has been on my mind recently is inflation. Intuitively, I would think inflation could have a negative effect on my stock portfolio because it can lead to higher interest rates and lower valuations. How do you think about inflation and how it relates to investing in these higher growth companies? There's always a macro factor that's kind of hanging over stocks. And there's always, honestly, any time you're investing, there will be something that people on CNBC are talking about that it's worrying whether it's interest rates were rising, whether it's a China trade war or Greece going 
bankrupt. Like there's so many factors just that you can find over the years. And I would say more times than not, they are distracting from the overall process of investing. But inflation is really interesting because the reasons that you just said. And the way I look at it is if a company is capital light and has really low material costs, then I mean, if this company is growing 100% and there's 3% inflation, is that better than a company that is growing 7% and has 3% inflation? So it just seems like if you're growing very fast, it provides almost a contrast in a low growth environment versus companies that are maybe growing much slower, they're capital intensive, they have high material costs. So I'm really not sure exactly where it all plays out. And that's usually my answer. I mean, I just have no idea. But I think that if companies are growing really fast and and they're, they're capital light, then I tend to think that inflation won't have as drastic of an impact on them. But like you said, we don't control interest rates. And I guess we'll, we'll kind of see where it goes. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Now let's talk about Tesla. First off, 
I just wanted to give a full disclosure that neither Ryan or I own any shares in Tesla ourselves. This will just be an open discussion of the company and the bull and bear cases for the stock. And this is a pretty timely interview as just this week in later October, there was an announcement that Hertz is going to purchase 100,000 Tesla vehicles between now and the end of 2022. And Hertz, the rental car company, also stated that they want over 20% of their rental vehicles to come from Tesla. And this sent Tesla stock to over $1,000. And the company hit a trillion dollar market cap for the first time in the stock's history. Do you have any comments you'd like to add regarding what we've seen from Tesla and the news from Hertz? It's really interesting. I think that it's probably likely that other rental car companies will follow suit. It probably just makes a lot of sense. I think that even in the future, as these car costs will continue to go down just because battery production gets better and better, I don't see why this wouldn't be another tailwind. I mean, we were just talking before the show, this order represents $4.2 billion, which is a little bit less than 10% of Tesla's total revenue. So this is a serious order. And I think it's just a validation that Tesla's technology is obviously really good. So one thing that comes to mind when I see this news and how big of a deal it is for Tesla is just the advertising perspective. Like Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are going to get exposure to Tesla's vehicles through this rental car service if they're using Hertz, which is pretty amazing to think about since Tesla does not spend any money at all on advertising. That's something that I didn't even really think of. But when you get a rental car and you get a Tesla... It's just free test drives for Tesla all day long, which, you know, it can be interesting. If you've never driven a Tesla and all of a sudden you get one as a rental car, you're like, wow, I I need one of these. I have test drove the Tesla Model S myself, and the experience they provide is absolutely incredible, in my opinion. I think that Tesla is just one of those great companies that provides such a unique experience that you can't fully appreciate it or really explain it unless you've actually lived through it yourself. I think it's interesting. There's sort of meme about Tesla where it's like people who are shorting the stock and then people who have the stock, they're like, well, you've never driven it. Like Once you drove it, then you'll understand sort of the hype around it. So I think there is something to that of, wow, this customer experience is so much superior to a normal driving experience that I think that it's easy to underweight that, but it's very important because that's the core of business, trying to provide a superior value proposition. And if you can do that way better than competitors, then that is almost by definition a good business. It's obvious that pretty much everyone knows that Tesla is an electric car manufacturer. Tell us about some of the other things Tesla does and how exactly they're disrupting the car industry. I think Tesla has some of the most optionality of any company, meaning they can really expand into a lot of other business lines. So the mission of the company is to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. And you'll notice that nothing in there mentions cars. I think that cars are, are really just the first piece of the puzzle. And Elon's even at times talked about how he thinks that energy business could be bigger than the car business. And when I first heard that, I was really, really skeptical. But I think that if you look into it a little bit, they have solar panels, solar roofs, the power walls, mega pack, battery packs. So 
they really have this vision of building a distributed electric utility. And they're even selling some of their softwares, like there's one called AutoBidder that utility in Australia uses to kind of manage how they're routing electricity to different homes. And it's kind of crazy that the company is so involved in projects like this. But then they have, I mean, even on the last earnings call, they talked about insurance. So having individual insurance policies for every Tesla driver, depending on your driver behavior, and it's sort of updating in real time. So if you're a super safe driver, you don't have to get this higher premium to sort of uh, offset the risk of some riskier drivers and the insurance is basically in the pool that the insurance company covers. And so they're doing some really innovative things there. They even have an AI supercomputer named Dojo that they've been talking about. Maybe we'll offer this supercomputer as a service. So there's all sorts of crazy stuff they're doing. And I mean, they have the full self-driving. It's not quite there. I mean, it's still getting rolled out. But maybe they could offer that as a service to other companies. And it's just crazy the amount of innovation that's going on at the company. And you know, batteries are getting better and better, cheaper and cheaper. Cars are, are charging faster and faster. And so it just seems like there's so much. I mean, if you know the, the ARC investment firm, they've been talking about the robo-taxis for a really long time, having this distributed network of robo-taxis. And I mean, who knows where everything goes, but they've really got a lot of irons in the fire. Now, you mentioned many of their other lines of business, but currently the majority of Tesla's revenue comes from the car business. And I think that really needs to be like the foundation of their company going forward. In preparation for this interview, I was listening to Tesla's annual meeting and Elon Musk said that Tesla is just as much a software company as much as it is a hardware company. What do you think makes their cars so special relative to some of the other manufacturers? Because we know some of these other car companies are going into the electric vehicle space. They're prepping for that potential transition in the near future. I would think that they really have to differentiate themselves on the software side, like kind of like Elon is saying. Could you expand on that? It's really interesting, especially if you even compare Tesla and the type of people they hire versus a traditional car manufacturer. If you look at the number of software engineers at Tesla versus at GM or Chrysler, it's not even a comparison. And I think that shows up in things like over-the-air updates. If you're a Tesla owner, you can, boom, get five more miles of range just by downloading a new software. And it kind of boggles my mind how that even works and how they can make things more efficient in the car through the software where you can just download something and boom, all of a sudden you have a performance upgrade. The legacy manufacturers have not cracked that code. It's because they're trying to sort of rewire cars that have been built so long ago, like the models have been created and it's just a totally different way of thinking. And so I think that that is what Elon might be referring to when he says that it's really more of a software company than a hardware company. But at the same time, they spend so much time on the design of the car and trying to get everything right the crazy thing is Elon talks about time and time again how hard manufacturing is. And that's, that's obviously the hardware piece of it. And they do so much to try to ramp production. It's pretty crazy just that what goes into the factories that they have and the automation in the factories. But I guess the automation is even software for the robots that are creating the cars. 
And one of the most impressive things about Tesla to me is how vertically integrated the company is, meaning it's really all the way down. So oftentimes, if they can't find a perfect part for their vehicles, they will actually create the machine to create that new product. They basically are just constantly creating things rather than pulling things in from new suppliers. I mean, they do get the, the cells from Panasonic. I mean, they can't build absolutely everything themselves. Like, there's just an insane amount of vertical integration, which I think is really, really impressive. That reminds me a lot of SpaceX. You know, Elon and his crew went over to Russia to figure out, okay, how are we going to get a rocket put together? And Elon tells his guys, hey, how about we just build the rocket ourselves? And they thought he was crazy. And before you know it, him and his team were able to put together a rocket for like 10% of the cost of what NASA could do. And just thinking about that and how Elon has these production facilities at Tesla, just the guy obviously understands production and how he can increase efficiency, decrease costs, bring things in-house. And it's just incredible to think about how he's done this with not only a rocket company, but a car company as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if he would be able to drastically reduce the cost of producing a car at some point in the future. Yeah, definitely. And just to talk a little bit more about the software, it's pretty crazy just the the number of miles that Teslas have driven compared to the next autonomous competitor like Waymo or something. I think if you look at there's certain estimates between like 500 and 1000 times more miles have been driven in Teslas than Waymo. And it's just the, the pure amount of data that they're getting. And they talk about this a lot, the, the edge cases where really random things happen. So you're driving down a freeway and a truck drops whatever's on the back of their pickup. And it's like, okay, what, what's the car going to do in that situation? Or there's like a jacket draped over the stop sign. It like sort of distorts the stop sign. And it's like, there's so many different little edge cases that really make up what is the real world. And it's hard to get all of that data if you're not having this millions of Teslas that are constantly collecting data and sending it back to the Dojo supercomputer that can then have insights on what the car should do in certain situations. So I would say that there is also a huge flywheel there where they're getting so much more data than the competitors, meaning the insights are better. And so they can roll that out to the huge fleet. And then it just keeps getting better and better. And it's like this snowball effect. And so I think that's an, another piece of sort of the, the software mode there. I agree that the data will be very valuable for them going forward, especially if they're able to collect much more than their competitors. And I wanted to touch on their current market share. Tesla's vehicle sales currently make up roughly 1% of the market in the US, while the valuation of Tesla is more than the top 10 automakers combined. You take all those automakers' valuations and combine them, it's still less than what Tesla is valued at. So I'm curious what you think realistically within, say, the next 5, 10 years, how big of a market share for car vehicle sales can Tesla achieve? I think that I've seen that chart so many times as Tesla has kind of grown in market cap, like how many cars Tesla selling versus valuation compared to Toyota and all that. And I always thought it was sort of missing the point a little bit. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think the market's always forward looking and that chart is inherently backward looking. And it's like, well, are you incorporating all of the massive production feats that Tesla is 
really creating themselves and the tailwinds of electric vehicles. And it's easy to sort of look at that chart and say like, how stupid are you if you buy a Tesla? But like I said, there's so much nuance. Just some brief metrics. I mean, there's somewhere around 70 million cars that are sold each year. So that's kind of like the upper limit. And last year, Tesla mentioned that their goal is to get to 20 million cars produced every year. We're not exactly sure how long that'll take. I mean, right now they're at a, about a million run rate. And so 20x increase in production is definitely no small feat. I mean, they're going to have to create more gigafactories. They just kind of broke ground at Austin. They're still ramping up Giga Berlin. There's so much that goes into increasing production by a factor of 20. And 20 million cars versus 70 million is you know, roughly like 30% market share. And Tesla says by 2030, they want to be able to produce 20 million cars. So within the next 10 years, that would be theoretically 30% market share, which I don't think is insanely unrealistic. I mean, one thing about Tesla is they set these huge goals, like way higher than anyone thinks, and then they usually miss them, honestly. And the thing is, it's sort of like the, if you shoot for the stars, you land on the moon sort of thing, where the goals are so high that they're really gunning for them. And then they end up farther than they would have if they just set like a normal goal. So I think that that's sort of the ethos of Tesla. A lot of times people get freaked out of they miss production, delivery time, and you know they came in behind the estimates. It's like, well, yeah, but the estimates are so unrealistic that it's just hard to kind of keep them accountable to that. But they still just keep trekking on because they do have such high aims. So I honestly don't know whether 30% is like in 10 years is the right number, but that's what Tesla's gunning for. You mentioned how they shoot for the stars, but they land on the moon. That brings our discussion to Elon Musk and his role in Tesla's success. He's kind of the CEO that is really one of a kind. He's similar to Steve Jobs in that he demands so much out of his people and expects so much for them. It's been said that he works 16-hour days himself as well. And on top of being the CEO of Tesla, he also runs SpaceX and a number of other companies. Can you tell us more about Elon's role in Tesla's success and where he's taken them in the future? I've got to say, I, I think I've underestimated Elon. Even it's really quite amazing what he's pulled off. I think that honestly, he'll go down as, you know, up there with Thomas Edison in terms of the contributions as an inventor and as a person who pushes innovation forward. The thing about Elon is he's so hands-on as well. It's not like he's sitting in his office and letting all the engineers do what they do. I mean, he's really involved in design. He's really involved in the actual manufacturing and engineering. So last earnings call, he mentioned that he wasn't going to do earnings calls anymore. And part of me was like, oh, wow. And I'm like, I kind of was skeptical. Like, I don't know if he's going to just start blowing off Wall Street. But sure enough, this earnings call, he wasn't on there. He lets CFO do most of the talking. And he did that so he can be focused more on the product and more on actually moving Tesla forward. And, and the stock price will obviously follow, as we've seen. I can't say enough um, about how just purely innovative he is. I mean, he does do some really crazy things, though. There was a couple years ago, he had the 420 secured thing, like the funding secured at the stock price of 420. And it's like... And that seems fairly illegal. And there was the, like, the whole SEC investigation. And so there are, there's like these two sides of the coin. But if you have a person as eccentric as he is, there's always a, another side of the coin 
where you can't expect them to be like all perfectly buttoned up and like your typical corporate exec. It's like you can't really get one without the other. And so I think that's something that I underestimated for too long. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. In thinking about this electric vehicle transition, I believe you're in the Los Angeles area. I haven't been to California, but I'm sure there are just Teslas everywhere out on the roads. I visited Seattle recently and saw Teslas everywhere, and I'm actually located in the Midwest. I'll see Teslas around, but I don't think it's really anything like what you'll see on the coast. Do you think there will be some sort of friction in the transition to electric vehicles at a mass market level, whether that be the time it takes to charge a Tesla or just the resistance in going from a gas vehicle to electric? I honestly think what you mentioned is one of the bigger friction points, even just the charging times. If you're doing a road trip where you're going from Southern California to Northern California, you have a range of, say, 300 miles. And so you drive the 300 miles, but you know, you're not supposed to get it down too low because that's actually harmful to the battery. So you have to leave like a 20% charge. Then you have 80% of 300. Um, so you have more like 
240 miles. And that will go pretty fast. I mean, four hours of driving and then you have to pull off and it might take 30 minutes to charge versus five minutes at a gas station. And so there's like this small friction that I think people are like, I can't just get up and go do a road trip with a Tesla. I have to really plan out charging stations. And I might be in Nebraska where there's no charging stations around. And it's like, well, how do I charge my Tesla? Like you have to be very intentional about your route planning. So I think that that's actually a big thing. But what people might underestimate is actually that technology is getting better and better. They even just mentioned that they upgraded their supercharger and there's improvements in the battery technology that can actually reduce charge times. And so I think it, once you get it down to that same amount of time versus filling up and charging, it's like, what is the thing that's really holding you back? I mean, better performance, lower costs, uh, you don't have to pay for gas, same charge times. It's like, then it's more like an ideological thing. It's like every logical thing is checked off. You just like the sound of your gas guzzling car. It's like, that's really the only thing that it's like the last bastion. Um, so I think charge times is actually really important that, that they get that down. I definitely agree with you. Now, there are a lot of things I like about Tesla as a company, but the one thing that has held me back from investing in them is their valuation. At the time of this recording, they're over a trillion dollar market cap. So when I look at that and I just compare it to other opportunities in the market, I just see better opportunities that I like more just from a risk reward perspective. What do you think about the valuation of Tesla? This is the factor, right? It's really interesting thinking of the biggest upside scenario. I think that oftentimes with investing, we think about downside so much. It's like, okay, what are the, the worst possible things that could go wrong? And really an intense focus on the downside. I think that's very important. But I don't think that there's the same focus or at least the same extent of the focus on thinking about like, what are the things that could go really right? I think that Tesla has one of the I mentioned like the amount of optionality it has. Things could go really, really right with Tesla. And that's obviously incorporated in the valuation. So, you know, if they hit 20 million cars in 10 years and they have an average selling price of $40,000, that's $800 billion in revenue. I mean, that's pretty wild. This last quarter, they did 15% operating margins. Maybe with some manufacturing efficiencies, they can push that up to 20%. That's $160 billion of earnings. I don't know what the correct multiple on that is, even if it's 20 times. That's $3.2 trillion of market cap. So that's a 3x over 10 years, which is certainly nothing to sneeze at. And that's only the car business. I mean, that's not even mentioning energy. That's not even mentioning the other things I talked about, not even incorporating full self-driving, which is basically pure margin, insurance, which is basically pure margin because they have all the data on individual drivers. So you can sort of see that like, okay, it's a trillion dollar company, but I mean, it could theoretically, I mean, it's not maxed out in terms of its market opportunity. Really, the risk is that the valuation gets so large that even with amazing performance for 10 years, there's no way you can get any returns. And I'm not sure if we're at that point yet. I guess you can really see that the, the upside like if things go really right, there's still room for the stock. But there's obviously the other side of that where 
traditional manufacturers are really trying to go full throttle into electric vehicles. There's some upstarts. There's execution risks. I mean, it's very, very difficult to produce all these cars. And for a long time, Tesla wasn't making any money, which was this huge risk of they're going to have to just keep diluting themselves and diluting shareholders. But as soon as they started making money, we saw the stock go up like 30x. And so that was like clearly the main thing that was holding back the stock of, is this company going to be even solvent? I mean, there was some real worries that Tesla was even going to exist as a company. And shorts were really talking about, you know, like accounting gimmicks that they're pulling off, that they were trying to make money. And I think that that was the key there of if Tesla's actually making money and they're self-funding, then I mean, the upside is virtually unlimited because the existential downside has been limited quite a lot. Unlike with you, I've sort of you know, always been said like, oh, well, Tesla is so much more expensive than traditional car manufacturing, just doesn't make sense. But I think I was really missing the, the big picture of what can really go right about this company. So when valuing a company like Tesla, a quote-unquote value investor might come up with a very low valuation just solely based on the numbers. And what they wouldn't be accounting for is the optionality of the company moving forward. And you touched on this earlier with the insurance, the energy, and Elon mentioned that they could sell their autonomous driving software to the other car companies if it's easier for them just to buy what Tesla has and because it's superior and they don't have to make those investments and develop it themselves. Since there's so much optionality, I'm curious... What do you believe are the biggest opportunities for Tesla going forward? You know, there's just so many different areas they could go into. Which ones do you think are the biggest opportunities for Tesla? It would be really interesting if they started offering their self-driving to other companies. It would sort of be like, okay, since if they can get their software into other cars and there's even that bigger fleet that is improving the data. It kind of seems like game over to me, honestly, because what other company is going to best them in terms of the amount of data that they're getting? And then it almost becomes like a design preference for customers. It's like, okay, you're full self-driving, so you don't have to worry about that. But it's like, what kind of car do you want to roll around in? It's really quite interesting. The other thing is, even with the energy business, so there's estimates by 2024, about 2.5% of homes will be powered by solar. And so if you do that math, that's about 4 million homes in the US. And average cost of a solar roof is something like 40 to 50K. So even if you just go off of that, that's a, that's a $200 billion market. And these are gigantic markets. I mean, compared to a normal total addressable market, I mean, even software companies that are really quite large, they might have... TAMs of 50 billion. But this is just one piece of Tesla's business. And just kind of going back to the optionality, there's so many directions that this company can go in and there's so many huge markets. I mean, the mission is amazing. Accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. There's so much that can follow under that. And they're really starting with, you know, solar and cars. But it'll be interesting to see what they dream up one day. I mean, I don't want to get like all fanboy on, on the company. I mean, there's still a lot that needs to be done in terms of production. And it's right of them to focus on cars because that's the first thing and the vast majority of their, their money from that. Yeah, I guess we'll see. But there's quite a, a lot of optionality. I would definitely say we've talked the company up quite a bit up to this point. And let's talk about the risks. In your mind, 
What are the biggest risks for Tesla going forward? I'm assuming you've thought about this a little bit since you don't own Tesla and you like owning higher growth companies like Tesla. So what are the biggest risks you see? One of the things that's really kept me out of the stock is I thought there was a huge reliance on Elon. So if something happens and he's spending his time in so many different directions with SpaceX, uh, Neuralink, Boring Company, like there's just so many things that he's doing that I thought that it might be hard for Tesla to continue to just crank out cars. And, you know, obviously I've been very wrong on that. But I thought there was this huge reliance on Elon, especially with some of the things he's done with the whole SEC investigation, like pumping Dogecoin. And it's like, huh, I just don't know how I feel about that as the leader of this company that, you know, is doing so many amazing things. But like I see him on Twitter, I'm like, huh, there's kind of this discrepancy here. But I think I mentioned this, you can't really have one without the other. If you have such an eccentric person, he's not going to be perfectly buttoned up as your typical corporate executive. And then obviously, the other thing is the valuation, as we talked about. I mean, a trillion dollar company, there's high execution requirements. I mean, if the company doesn't execute, if they don't get anywhere close to that 20 million barrier by 2030, the stock could go sideways or lose value for quite a long time. So there are really high execution risks. I think one thing that I thought was a bigger risk was competition. There's always fears about, you know, oh, GM's going fully electric now and whatever company is starting to go fully electric. And it just seems like there's such a big distance between Tesla and the competitors. And I think that that's something that I miss of really focusing on that and that being a determining factor. So yeah, I mean, there's valuation, Elon sort of risk, and then execution risks. I mean, manufacturing is an incredibly hard problem. I would say those are kind of the main ones. Tesla has bet big on China as they are building a gigafactory there. And China is also a country that has banned companies like Google and Facebook from even operating there. Is there a chance that China cracked down on Tesla so that the Chinese government can prevent them from gaining a substantial level of market share? I think it's certainly quite possible. So there's other Chinese manufacturers out there like Neo, and I just think that the Chinese government has made it fairly clear that they favor um, their own companies rather than foreign companies. So I think that the fact that Tesla has a gigafactory in Shanghai is really important that they're highly aligned. It's not like they're just shipping cars in, and I think that the Chinese government would probably frown upon that a little bit more. But it's an interesting risk that you bring up and and one that I think should really be thought about deeply if you're a Tesla investor. Because I'd say it's, it's quite possible. It's hard to know exact probabilities, but yeah, it's definitely something to think about. It seems like almost every few months, I see something in the news where there are Tesla recalls and it's just like thousands of vehicles are being recalled. And I wonder, do you know if that could hurt the company substantially from a financial standpoint? I guess it would be the number of recalls. So just in terms of the total fleet, like I don't know how many uh, cars are being recalled in most of these reports. And yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. I think that another thing that you see in the news a lot is some person was on autopilot in Tesla and unfortunately crashed. And so Tesla should be held liable for that. And it seems like time and time again, they've sort of as the details have come out, it's like somebody 
was sleeping or not really paying attention. And they say that you need to be paying attention. It's not like completely autonomous yet. So I think that there are sort of a lot of news headlines that come out. But I think that that's also one of the risks as we transition to autonomous driving. I mean, unfortunately, so many people are killed in car accidents. And if you just look at what's possible, I think like it'll be maybe 50 years from now, like our grandkids will say like, how on earth did you guys let each other just drive cars and have all these accidents? Like it would be almost viewed as barbaric if we have autonomous driving and basically zero accidents. I mean, I would love if that happened because it would show that the pure amount of deaths would, would go down exponentially. I'm hopeful, but I think that there's a lot of news headlines that obviously will take place from here and in that hopeful future. At the end of each episode, we like to have a segment called the action plan. In this segment, we like to ask the guests three questions that can create an action plan for listeners to do when they're done with the episode. So the first question, which habit or principle do you follow in your life that has had a big impact on your success that not enough people do, but should? That's a great question. I think one thing I try to do, definitely not always successfully, is just take the other side of the argument just for fun. So like Tesla, you know, I don't own the stock, but trying to think of the most bullish case just for fun, to try to like almost stretch my mind um, or a company that I really like, try to look at the most bearish possible case to just... I think so often it's easy to get locked into tunnel vision. It's like what I think and what I see is correct and that's the only way versus just taking the complete opposite of that argument. I try to get in that, that habit and it's really uncomfortable, quite honestly. But if you, I think if you do it enough and kind of exercise it, it can be really helpful to see things from, from different angles. I really like that. Confirmation bias is something that's very real. If you're the biggest Tesla bull, you might only read content from people that are also Tesla bulls. And you know, if someone has a legitimate case for why the company might not do so well in the future, then you're likely to trying to avoid that content. So I really like that and how you get both sides of the argument. Thanks. I mean, it's kind of crazy just like if you read something that you really disagree with, you automatically almost think of this person as like a bad person. It's like you have no idea what the character of this person is. It's just like they have a very different worldview than you. That doesn't mean they're a bad person at all. You have to like sort of separate the person from the content. And it's just as humans, we are super, super bad at that. What has been the most influential book in your life? It doesn't have to be your favorite, just the most influential. My faith is really important to me. So it's kind of like the cock-out answer, but I'd say the Bible is definitely the most influential. But investing related, I would say is One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. That really got me fascinated with the stock market and tons of great real-life examples. So when this episode is over, before the listener quickly jumps to the next podcast queued up in their player, what is one action that they should take to help improve their life, career, business, or just their investment strategy? I think the one practical thing is keeping a decision journal. So whether it's actually like a physical journal or just a, a note on your phone or your laptop of... All the decisions you make, I mean, so investing is a really easy example of every trade you make, write down exactly why you made the trade. And so this is pretty humbling, actually, because let's say the stock doubles and it goes up for a completely different reason than you said. 
it's like, okay, the results say I'm right, but I was actually wrong. So if you look at this decision journal over time, it really just shows you how overconfident we can be. So I'd say that just track your decisions and it will help you also remember obviously why you made the decision. And then it can be kind of humbling. Or if you do get it right, then you can update your process and say, okay, that was actually a good decision. And here's why I made this. And so you, you can sort of build this pattern recognition because we can fool ourselves very easily. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. TIP does too. And I really enjoyed this conversation around Tesla and your overall investment philosophies. Before we close things out, where can the audience go to connect with you? So if you just type in investing city, you'll find my website. And you can also find me on Twitter at investing underscore city. DMs open. So feel free to, to reach out. I always love talking to people. Awesome. Thanks so much. We'll be sure to link those in the show notes. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Clay. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.